One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Reluctant Historian. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. I'm your host, Liz Lawson, and this is our reluctant historian, Dakota Lawson. On this podcast, I'll tell him a story from history, and he'll share his unapologetic thoughts and opinions. So if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. On today's episode, Dakota, you actually already know what we're doing, because we're doing that two-parter. Yes, I do. I'm actually quite excited for it. Why don't you tell the audience what we're hearing today? Yes. So on today's episode... We are going to be talking about the satanic panic of the 1980s. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. The, so I, the 80s? Yes. Oh, interesting. I literally know nothing about this. The only thing I know is the word satanic panic that you told me. That's right. So I, for some reason, thought this time period would be much earlier. No. So I do need to give a disclaimer before we get into this episode. Uh, this episode is going to mention child abuse, suicide, and sexual abuse, and so listener discretion is advised. No, no you're supposed to say, viewer discretion is advised. <laughs> Nobody's watching us. German, Liz, it's viewer discretion is advised. Let's try that again. Viewer discretion is advised. I've always wanted to say that. Okay, so, so do you want me to give the disclaimer again? And you no, can say- no, it's done. It's okay, done. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, All right, so sit down, buckle up, and get ready to listen to the history of the Satanic Panic. like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory in the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. Okay, so we have a correction connection. Tell me what your correction can... No, I got it. It's not... You're, you know what? I'll leave the singing to you. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Thanks. Yeah, so this correction comes to us from Jenny from the Block. Jenny from the Block. Jenny from the... Producing... Never mind. I'm taking over singing. Yo, Jenny from the Block. Now you're here. I actually don't know how that song goes. Wait. I... We should... What? Never sing. Well, so in episode eight, we did the history of names... Mm-hmm. And I made mention of the Roman name Cicero, meaning elegant. Now, the English word Ciceronian means eloquent, and Cicerone means local guide, but it doesn't actually mean elegant itself. So what, might you ask, does it actually mean? And well... That's what I was going to ask. What does it mean? Yes. So it's a cognomen. We remember what that word means. I actually don't remember what a cognomen is. Um, It's derived from the Latin word cicer, which means chickpea. Chickpea. Mm -hmm. Huh. Did Jenny from the block just know this off the top of their head? She did, yeah. 
Wow. Mrs. Smarty Pants over I there. know. So Marcus Tullius Cicero, who's now, we just call him Cicero, um, he was a statesman, orator, and author of the first century, political enemy of Mark Anthony. He, his name was Cicero, Chickpea, Cognomens, I guess, are kind of like if we remember the nickname part. So I had read somewhere when I was double checking that Cicero means chickpea, uh, that he had like a pimple on his face or a bump on his face that was the size of a chickpea. So that's where he got that name from. Very cool. Yeah. So thanks for that correction, Jenny from the block. Mm-hmm. Um, Dakota, what's your golden nugget today? My golden nugget. Now, this might be bouncing off of your ears a little bit, but so we went and did a workout today. And then afterwards, you said the magic words, I kind of want Popeyes. And so we went and got Popeyes today. Mm-hmm. And I had a chicken sandwich. Now, the first time I got the chicken sandwich, it was... Very average. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I, the first time we got it, I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. I was like, why does everybody think that this is the most amazing chicken sandwich ever? Now, this time I had it. Now, not the most amazing sandwich ever, but a solid eight, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I have, I have a little bit of something to confess. Oh, no. So while eating it, my thought process was, I can't let her have no, know how good this is because I don't want to share any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was having such a good time eating it, and I'm like, even one bite gone from this, I'd be sad. Oh, I didn't have any bites of yours. I know, which was weird, but I know. you also had chicken, so and it's like kind of the yeah. same. But I really did actually want to ask for a bite, but there was just something in my head where I was like, nah, I don't need to ask for a bite. Maybe I'm reading your thoughts. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe you were just like giving off like some weird like body language where i knew if i like had asked for a bite you would have been like <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like oh okay exactly yep uh so yeah it was uh it was delicious how was how was yours my popeyes yeah uh yeah it was good kind of wet though that's a weird way to describe it because it, it was so moist and juicy and tender and i didn't really love yeah. it i you gave me some years after you because you were full and i didn't get that vibe from it hmm. so that's interesting, but yeah, but the the biscuit, mm. so good. So Their biscuits are so good. Yummy. Oh my gosh! Yeah, this so, is not an endorsement or a spon- We are not sp- sponsored by Popeyes. Uh, we will take sponsorships from uh, Popeyes as well as Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and anyone else who will give us money. Let's be frank. We're not. Uh, <laughs> we're not picky over here. <laughs> what about you? What's your golden nugget? Um, I think my golden nugget is I have gotten back into swimming. Yes, you have been really enjoying that, and I'm so fast. You are just, just the, just the fastest of all. I'm so fast. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm not actually so fast. When I was younger, I used to speed swim, and and then, so this is why I'm a little disappointed in myself. When I was younger, I used to speed swim, and I would be able to do 25 meters, well, 50 meters in about 32, 34 seconds when I was sprinting. Right, so I was pretty fast, and now it takes me 29 seconds to do half that length and yes i'm not 12 any longer and i haven't been training competitively but i still for whatever reason think i should be just as fast as i was but it's still fun i still enjoy getting in the pool and swimming and that feeling that feeling of exhaustion and then you get out of the pool and you're like oh, i'm so hungry i could eat a whole bowl of pasta at seven in the morning um yeah that's my golden nugget any longer is that that didn't the way you said that didn't sound grammatically correct what did i say uh, I can't swim that any longer. Is that right? Yeah. That doesn't sound right. I would have said any more. I can't swim that anymore. I'm pretty sure it's still grammatically correct. 
I just want to make you the fool as an English teacher, but so we'll we'll just pretend it's wrong. I'm glad you're enjoying swimming so much, though. Thank you. Although, you know, them kids you're hanging out with, they're making you go at 6 a.m. I know. That is, I mean, luckily I haven't heard you when you've been leaving, but if I do ever hear you, there will be a wrath. Your wrath? My wrath. Not just from for you, but for your friends. <laughs> so are you threatening them? <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly. Oh, dear. Okay, so you brought up the point that you thought that this satanic panic that we were going to be talking about was earlier in the history. You want to tell me about that a little bit? Yeah, I don't know why. Satanic panic, for some reason, that sounds like, I don't know, for some reason it sounds like 60s type stuff. Mm. Like that's kind of around the time period I was thinking. I don't really know why I thought that, but... I didn't ever think 80s, mm. so I, I have no idea what this is about, mm-hmm. but I'm very intrigued. Interestingly enough, it does have its roots in the 60s, but it doesn't like actually manifest until the 80s. So you're not wrong. Never am. Okay. The Satanic Panic, which is also known as Satanic Ritual Abuse, which is like a fancier way of Satanic Panic, and I'm probably just going to keep saying Satanic Panic because it's fun to say. <laughs> it was a moral panic that originated in the USA in the 1980s, and it spread through many parts of the Western world by the late 1990s. It even came here to Canada, and we had our own little Satanic Panic in Martinsville. Oh, really? Yeah. So if you want to know more about that, the CBC does a really awesome podcast about that case in Martinsville, and it's called Uncover Satanic Panic. It's season six, so all of season six is about the Martinsville case, um, and I've linked it in our show notes. And that story basically tells the case of Martinsville, the trial. It also looks at the culture of the society at the time, and it's so, 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 so good. I listened to it this past summer, and I was absolutely shook by the fact that this had happened so close to home, right? So like, Martinsville is super close to where we live. Yeah, 10, ten minutes from the outside of the city to Martinsville. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh... Yeah, that's kind of wild. I'm I'm sure just even hearing that we had that happen in Martinsville, not knowing what the satanic panic is particularly, although I could have my guesses, of course, but it's kind of crazy that that happened so close to home. Yeah. And I asked my mom if she remembered it because I would have been growing up around this time. Um, She said it was all over the news. And mm-hmm. so I often, when I was listening to that podcast and doing my research, I wonder like what our parents were feeling and thinking at the time. I'm sure my mom was absolutely terrified because we both know Bev. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure it was uh, a scary time for her. For sure. So what is the satanic panic? Yeah. So allegations of satanic ritual abuse involved reports of physical and sexual abuse of people in the context of occult or satanic rituals. So what that basically means is that um, mostly children were accusing adults in their life of physically and sexually abuse the, abusing them in, like, satanic ritual reasons. Obviously, there was some merit to it, because otherwise we wouldn't be discussing this podcast. Otherwise, the <laughs> otherwise the episode would be called uh, The Time Those Kids Lied About Getting Abused. Maybe that would have been a better title for the podcast. Really? Yes. Ooh, what a, what a uh, tease. Yes. So we will get to that, and we will answer that question, but... Mm-hmm. Um, In its most extreme form, allegations involve a conspiracy of a global satanic cult that includes the wealthy and powerful world elite in which children are abducted or bred for human sacrifice, pornography, and prostitution. My guess is that the the current QAnon conspiracy kind of stems from these um, this period in time. 
Oh, really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. So nearly every aspect of satanic ritual abuse is controversial, including how to define it, the source of the allegations, and proof of it. What I mean by that is there isn't really any... I don't really... I don't know. There isn't proof to this? Is it just kind of the kids saying this? Yeah, right? So yeah. if you notice, I keep talking about allegations, right? I haven't said... Allegedly. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a wild thing. Mm-hmm. This panic that gripped the Western world in the 80s affected lawyers, therapists, and social workers' handling of allegations of child sexual abuse. So that's the key thing. It's the way that the lawyers and the therapists and the social workers dealt with these allegations. Allegations initially brought together widely dissimilar groups, including religious fundamentalists, police investigators, child advocates, therapists, and client in psychotherapy. And it also became associated with disassociative identity disorder and anti-government conspiracy theories. So I've kind of given you an overview of this thing. We're going to talk a little bit about the history. Accusing outsiders of doing horrific things isn't new to us. We as humans have often accused outsider groups of horrific acts, including allegations of cannibalism, child murder, torture, incestuous orgies. None of this is new. Historically speaking, it allows for groups in society to put minorities in a position of other, thus creating a scapegoat for complex problems in times of social disruptions. Simply put, when a society is experiencing a change in their social or moral fabric of the community, they tend to put those changes on the outsiders of their community. And so, for example, the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries. The medieval world was going through big social changes and people were experiencing trials that they could not understand. So it was easier to blame these problems on the outsiders of their community. In this case, the old single women who lived down the way, it was easier to accuse them as the reason why their community's crops were not growing. I just imagine them being like, ah, it must be the old w- old single women down the way's fault. <laughs> That's exactly what they said. Yeah. So the satanic ritual abuse panic from the 80s had many familiar features that have been shown in previous historical moral panics and often in conspiracy theories as well. So another historical example is the blood libel, which is um, also known as blood accusation, which is a false anti-Semitic accusation that's often leveled at Jewish people. Um, and so they would say that these Jewish people had murdered Christian children in order to use their blood as part of religious rituals. And then historically, those claims, as alongside the ones where they would say the Jewish people were poisoning the wells or desecrating the Catholic host, you know, like the little bread blood bread wafer, they've been a major theme of persecution of the Jewish population in Europe. Wait, hold on. How do you desecrate it? Do you just like, just like draw a dick on it or something like that? <laughs> I don't know what they, I don't know, maybe they How were just How do you desecrate like, a little piece of bread? I don't know what they were doing. Like, ah, I'm just gonna, like, I'm just gonna rub my butt on it. Yeah, that's probably the one. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, that's not new to us as humanity. We often will just Draw say, dicks on stuff. Yes. Or say that these groups are doing horrific things because we like to have us versus them mentality. Yeah, it's crazy how that... uh aspect of history has continued to repeat itself absolutely um so the witch hunts of the 16th and 17th centuries were also another example of this um and the red scare and mccarthyism in the 40s and the 50s are more examples of where we have um leveled horrific allegations at outsider groups kind of to bring everybody in so we can identify who belongs to us and we can see those as others and then we can blame them 
for all of the disruptions to our society that we're experiencing. And so we'll get into that a little bit more, but I just want to kind of like lay the groundwork is that, um, you know, if you're generally a more conservative society and things are happening that are more progressive and more liberal, uh, you will often see these types of moral panics happening. So in the earlier time periods, Torture and imprisonment were used by authority figures at the time uh, to coerce confessions from alleged Satanists. So I'm talking about 16th century witch hunts, right? They would dunk them in their water. They would um, use like thumb screws to get confessions out of them. Um, That's awful. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking like, <laughs> is this the origin of the swirly? Um, another popular form of torture to gain a confession was they would put them on the ground um, and then stack stones on top of their bodies so you'll in the salem witch trials there was a famous man named giles who refused to confess to being a witch and so they just kept putting stones and stones and stones on top of his body and his last words was give me more in terms of like put another stone on because he refused to confess to being a witch yeah i just i just picture him being like (laughs) I'm not a witch. I'm a wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we have like historical record of people confessing to being witches, but like really they weren't witches, right? It's more of a, uh, well, you're torturing me, so I'm going to say whatever the hell you want me to say. Exactly. So these confessions were used later on in history to per, um to justify those executions of the people um and then also oddly enough these records of older allegations have been used by contemporary believers in an effort to prove that there are satanic cults that are actually part of an ancient conspiracy of evil even though there's never been any evidence of devil worshiping cults existing in europe at any time in history oh really yeah so that part i was just like the mental gymnastics that people have to perform to make their conspiracy theories like reality is just wild to me like you know that these people are being tortured in order to get these confessions and being like no that man confessed obviously he was a witch that proves that you know we've had these satanic cults for forever yeah but and then not being able to be like oh maybe they confessed because we put a bunch of bricks on their stomach (laughs) exactly like this stupidity or the sheer ignorance rather well and i just don't think people think critically very often no Mm -hmm. nobody can be not everyone can be as smart as us liz that's true dakota (laughs) so i said we were going to talk a little bit about the cultural movements that have affected the satanic panic and what kind of grew into this moral panic of the 80s Um, it was fueled by a number of cultural movements So five major ones here. The first one was the establishment of fundamental Christianity. This began in British and American Protestants as a reaction to theological liberalism. So the fundamentalists claimed that theologians in the 19th century had misinterpreted certain doctrines. Fundamentalists can almost always be described as having a literal interpretation of the Bible and are more conservative in their nature. Many churches which embraced fundamentalism adopted a militant attitude with regard to their core beliefs. This also gave rise to the founding and political activism of the religious organization that was called the Moral Majority. This was a prominent American political organization that was associated with the Christian right and the Republican Party, interestingly enough. Crazy. Christians and Republicans? (laughs) Need I say more? (laughs) The Moral Majority was founded in 1987 by a Baptist minister, Jerry Falwell Sr., and it dissolved in the late 1980s. 
It played a key role in the mobilization of conservative Christians as a political force, particularly in the Republican presidential victories throughout the 80s. So a lot of those Republican victories, like Ronald Reagan's victory, was fueled by this moral majority Christian fundamentalist group. I thought people just loved him uh, as a great actor. Same, I, same way uh, uh, Arnold got into office in California. See, I didn't actually know that Reagan was an actor until just recently. And really? I was like, what? Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything that he was in. That's just something I have heard. Mm. <laughs> and I think Family Guy riffs on him sometimes. But Yeah, you're right, though. Yeah. So the Baptist minister, in 1976, he led a series of rallies called I Love America in order to raise awareness of political issues that were important to him. Yeah. There's nothing to get Americans, like, all hyped and for you than just going, I love America. Like, right. Like, putting your stance on, America's the greatest country in the world. And then they're like, yeah, we believe whatever the hell you tell us to believe. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he had, like, done these rallies because he wanted to have more people aware of political issues that he thought were important. Um, interestingly enough is that this goes against the traditional Baptist principle of separating religion and politics. So, whereas, you know, you should have a separation of church and state, and that's what the Baptist believers generally felt, this guy was like, nah, fam, we're going to have church and state all wrapped up into one little neat little pancake. So that was a change of heart for Falwell, and he said that when he perceived what he described as the decay of the nation's morality. So ho through hosting these rallies, Falwell was able to gain national support for a formal organization and also to raise his profile as a leader. The Moral Majority was predominantly a Southern-oriented organization of, what? The no. of the Christian right. And then although there were state chapters in political activity, it that did extend beyond the South, it was mostly Southern. The moral majority sought to mobilize conservative Americans to become politically active on the issues that they thought were important. So now I kind of agree with that, but you don't need to do it from a religious standpoint. I think it is important that all people be involved in politics, whether you are a liberal or a conservative, but you shouldn't be basing these ideas based on your religion. I agree. <laughs> So this actually did work for Falwell. Um, he was able to create that moral majority and influence the elections. So some of the issues that they campaigned for included the following. Promotion of traditional family values. Opposition to media outlets that were accused of promoting an anti-family agenda. Opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment and strategic arms limitation talks. So we're actually they're voting on the Equal Rights Amendment just recently because um, women haven't had the same rights of of men. And so maybe I'll do an episode on like feminism in America. But women actually kind of went backwards in the gains that they had made through the 80s and through Reagan's politics. Oh, really? So mm -hmm. uh, maybe this is just a little off topic. How did uh, how did they go backwards? So they were arguing for like less rights for women and stuff. I can't have it. I don't have anything on the top of my head. I I hope they phrased it a little bit better than that. No, we, we well, won't take rights away from women. Like what they kind of phrased it as was, you know, we need to protect the family, and to protect the family, the wife needs to be at home. She shouldn't be out working. Oh, I can see that working as a 
especially like in the 80s i i I feel like that worked i'm assuming Mm -hmm. yeah it was a big um backlash to the 60s and the 70s and like the free love movement and Mm -hmm. um more women hippies yes more women entering the workforce and uh you know they were saying that this isn't the way that we want our society to go we want it to go back into like a traditional way of being like the nuclear family of the 50s Ugh, messed up yes So other issues that they campaigned for was opposition to state recognition or acceptance of homosexual acts, the prohibition of abortion, even including cases involving incest or rape, support for Christian prayers in schools, and proselytizing to Jews and other non-Christians for conversion to Christianity, which also just like boggles my mind that they were like, yes, as a political uh, act, we're going to be like, you should try and convert all the Jewish people to Christianity. Like it just blows my mind that this is something that they were like campaigning for yeah that's uh that's super messed up it's you know as a as a christian i i think it's messed up to try and to try to well convert someone so were they forcing them to convert or was it like highly like just trying to be influencing them to convert? yeah just trying to influence them okay so I don't know. I still I just I feel like we're we're supposed to love people where they're at, mm-hmm. and we can share with them what they believe. But when you're, I feel like they were probably heavily trying to get get mm-hmm. them to com- to convert, like being like what you believe is wrong. Mm-hmm. Believe in this. I don't know. I don't feel like that's what Jesus wanted. Mm-hmm. It's messed up. Continue. So the moral majority successfully campaigned to create an integrated social platform that appealed to the most conservative Christians by packaging a variety of previously disparate issues under the banner of traditional family values. Moral majority portrayed issues such as abortion, divorce, feminism, gay and lesbian rights, and the Equal Rights Amendment as attacks on the traditional concept and values of American families and tapped into a sense of societal moral decay that resonated with many evangelicals. They also campaigned for the inclusion of prayer in schools and tax initiatives for married couples as protection for the traditional family structure. Under this pro-family agenda, they mobilized a large base of supporters with issue-centric dialogue that they spread throughout their network of preachers and mailings. There's another way to get people is just be like, here, you'll get money back if you do this. Of course, I mean, it's like, you know, the whole like, support this person because there'll be less taxes and stuff like that, but not looking at all the terrible shit they're doing. But yeah, you have to pay less, you get to pay less taxes, but oh, don't look at this other shit. I don't know. That's just really frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it really is. So that was one thing that was happening in the culture. So it was shifting to this more conservative um, Christian thing. So the second cultural movement that was happening at this time was the rise of the anti-cult movement. I'm I'm a part of that. I'm anti-cult. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a good thing to be. <laughs> um like in the 60s and the 70s, we saw a lot of cults. So think of like Charles Manson and like Jonesville. Jonestown? Jonesville. Where did we get married? Um, Jonestown. We got married in Jonestown. We remember we like, there was all the guests. I like took some Kool-Aid, you know, that I provided. You know how much I love Kool-Aid. <laughs> I was like, here, drink, my friends. Someone spiked it. With poison. Okay, well, I was asking a serious question because I always get the two of them mixed up, but now I'm even more confused because you We got just... married at Jonesville. Okay. School house. Um, not where all those people died. Okay, so Jonestown, you're saying, was the cult. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah, because they wouldn't have called the school that house that we got married. It was a single schoolhouse. 
Uh, they wouldn't have called it Jonestown, I don't think. No. So I'm pretty sure it's Jonestown you're thinking of. Okay. So anyways, those are a bunch of cults that were around, but um, they're starting to see like the ends of these cults, um, creating the rise of the anti-cult movement. It was a collection of individuals and groups, not necessarily organized in a formal structure, uh, but people who opposed new religious movements known as cults. Um, and this movement accused abusive cults of kidnapping and brainwashing children and teenagers. So that was two cultural movements that were happening. Third cultural movement. Sorry. Okay. So recap. So two cultural movements. Uh, the first one was this old dude that brought in uh, uh, church and church and uh, state, mm-hmm. right? And created this movement. What was it called again? The Moral Majority. The Moral Majority. So that was number one, right? Sounds culty. Yeah, a little bit. And a lot of the stuff they were doing, I'm like, oh, that's that's a lot of bad shit. And then, uh, and then number two was the anti-cult. Yes. Yes? Okay, cool. Yes. Got it. So we have three was the appearance of the Church of Satan and other explicitly Satanist groups. So these things did end up adding a kernel of truth to the belief that Satanic cults existed. The Church of Satan is a religious organization dedicated to Satanism as explained in the Satanic Bible. However, their church, the Church of Satan, does not believe in the devil nor a Christian or Islamic understanding of Satan. Instead, members are described as skeptical atheists who embrace the Hebrew root of the word Satan, which means adversary. The Church of Satan views Satan as a positive archetype who represents pride, individualism, and enlightenment, and as a symbol of defiance against the Abrahamic faiths, which its founder criticized for what he saw as the suppression of humanity's natural instincts. The church does not espouse a belief in Satan as an entity who literally exists, and the encouragement of worshipping Satan as a deity is not a thing. Their current priest, Peter Gilmore, has stated, My real feeling is that anybody who believes in supernatural entities on some level is insane. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. So, these smarmy little (laughs) effers, we'll call them, they call themselves the Church of Satan, but like... Not the actual Satan. It's more like an idea or something. It, like, they think they're so freaking clever. <laughs> Are they hipsters or something? <laughs> they might be. Because I freaking hate hipsters, too. <laughs> I know. You hate a few people. No, I don't hate people. I love everyone. I just think that hipsters and hippies are the worst. Okay. So Of which I am both. Yes. but But it just, like... You see what I'm saying, though? It's like... I know, you hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, they just think that they're just so above everything. Mm -hmm. And that just grinds my gears, I tell you. So Gilmore defines the word Satan as a model or mode of behaviors, noting that the Hebrew word means adversary or to oppose, which can be regarded as one who questions. Give this guy a smack up the side of the head. (laughs) Um, So that's number three. The fourth cultural movement was the development of the social work or child protection field, which I thought was interesting that this was happening around like the 60s and the 70s, um, and their struggle to have child sexual abuse recognized as a social problem and a serious crime. That's odd that that would be a hard thing to be like, hey, you know what's, you know what's not good? Uh, child abuse. Yes. I think what they were trying to get at is that it was more prevalent maybe than people actually thought. Right. So people were kind of like, yeah, that's not really a thing. Yeah. The early 1980s saw the implementation of mandatory reporting laws. A mandatory reporting law means that people who have regular contact with vulnerable people are legally required to ensure a report is made when abuse is observed or suspected. So I'm somebody who has to report mandatorily because I'm a teacher. So if I think that there's abuse happening, I would have to mandatorily report that. And so this law kind of came in in the 80s. 
Oh, okay. And so this resulted in a large increase in child protection investigations in America, Britain, and other countries, along with a heightened public awareness of child abuse. And so now we're going to go to that fifth cultural movement. Okay. Popularization of post-traumatic stress disorder, repressed memory, and the corresponding survivor movement. What I mean by that is that people were starting to go into therapy and their therapists were like, ah, you have PTSD, you have repressed memories, you have, you know, you're a survivor of these things. And so while there is validity to some of these, some of the other things that I just said actually have been proven to not actually be an actual thing. I feel very vague right there. Sorry, so when you say that they're not actually a thing, just referring to this fifth movement or repressed memories I'm repressed referring to. Repressed me- memories. Okay, so that so that these some of these things that were reported or like they were like, "Oh, I have these suppressed memories." They weren't actually a thing. So like if you were to be like, "Oh, my dad hit me for and it was suppressed memory." That might not have actually happened. Is that what you're referring to? Mm-hmm, yeah, so I'm going to talk about that right now. Sure. Okay, go ahead. So Post-traumatic stress disorder is a mental disorder that can develop after a person is exposed to a traumatic event, and it is very real. Symptoms may include disturbing thoughts, feelings, or dreams related to the event, mental or physical distress to trauma-related cues, attempts to avoid trauma-related cues, alterations in how a person thinks and feels, and an increase in the fight-or-flight response. Young children are less likely to show distress, but instead may express their memories through play. A person with PTSD is at higher risk of suicide and intentional self-harm. And this has been proven to be a real psychological thing that people have to work through. However, repressed memories is a controversial and largely scientifically discredited claim saying that memories for traumatic traumatic events may be stored in the unconscious mind and blocked from normal conscious recall. And so this is important for what's going to happen when we talk a little bit more about the trials that dealt with satanic ritual abuse. So I just want you guys to have an understanding of what it actually was so that when I say hey, they use these repressed memories, you'll know what I'm talking about. It was originally an idea put forward by Freud, and he said that repressed memory theory claims that although an individual may be unable to recall the memory, it may still affect the individual through subconscious influences on behavior and emotional response. So you may be acting a a certain way and you don't know why, and it's because you have repressed this memory of abuse. So despite widespread belief in the phenomenon of repressed memories among lay people and some clinical psychologists, most research psychologists who study the psychology of memory dispute that repression ever occurs at all. So some psychologists claim that repressed memories can be recovered through psychotherapy. Um, Most experts of memory argue that rather than promoting the recovery of a real repressed memory, psychotherapy is more likely to contribute to the creation of false memories. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that as that psychologist is trying to be like, hey, like, let's talk. Hey, let's talk about this time when like, maybe this happened. Maybe your dad hit you. And you're like, maybe. Maybe my dad did hit me. Yeah, exactly. So you're creating these false memories. And and, like the memory is a really finicky thing, right? Like you can't really trust your memory. Well, yeah, you're every time you remember the thing that you're thinking about, you're remembering the memory of it. You're not remembering your what actually happened. So the further you get away from it and the more you remember it, the more you're, it gets vaguer and vaguer. Mm-hmm. So. Exactly. And that's how you can create these false memories as yep. well. So 
Dr. Richard McNally is a professor from Harvard. He has written about repressed memories and he says this, the notion that traumatic events can be repressed and later recovered is the most pernicious bit of folklore ever to infect psychology and psychiatry. It has provided the theoretical basis for recovered memory therapy, which is the worst catastrophe to befall the mental health field since the lobotomy era. Wow. So he's likening it to basically people putting ice picks in their brains. Damn. So not a fan then. (laughs) Right. So because in an effort to get at the repressed memories, therapists may use techniques such as age regression, guided visualization, trance writing, dream work, body work, and hip- his- hypnosis. And these are especially likely to contribute to the creation of false or pseudo-memories. Memories can be accurate, but they are not always accurate. And you can forget about abuse and trauma. But it doesn't mean that it's been repressed. Very interesting. So so this is, is this still a widely debated thing today? Um, that you know of? From what I was understanding from my research is that like a lot of psychologists and lay people, so we're like the lay people, still believe that it's a thing, but people who are researching it are saying no, like there isn't really any evidence of it happening. So from what I can understand, it sounds like, yes, there might be debate on it, but yeah. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these five cultural shifts are occurring around the same time and are laying the groundwork for the satanic panic that would occur in the later 80s and 90s, because we haven't actually even gotten to the satanic panic yet. So I'm going to talk a little bit about history now, which is still going to include some of the cultural shifts. So in the 70s. History. Our listeners didn't come here to listen to history. This is actually now a video game podcast. Perfect. <laughs> We're going to talk about... Okay. Okay, keep going. So in the 70s, the interest in and fear of the occult first started to kind of gain momentum. The Manson cult operated in the late 60s, culminating in a string of mass murders in 1969 that shocked the nation and put organized ritualistic killings into the mind of the public. That same year, the Satanic Bible was published by Anton LaVey, becoming the seminal work of modern Satanism and the key text for the Church of Satan. Also around this time was the 1971 publication of The Exorcist and its film adaptation in 1973. With its claims of being a true story, The Exorcist impacted North America's collective psyche regarding the existence of demons and single-handedly transformed the popular Ouija board from a fun, harmless parlor game into a malevolent device capable of inducing spirit possession, demonic infestation, and other paranormal activity. Wait, so is Ouija board not actually evil? I mean, maybe. So what uh, that means is that um, what I guess I understand is that the exorcist made it seem like it was such an evil thing and it kind of really shifted the way that America viewed the Ouija board. So maybe we should start playing with Ouija boards. I mean, Parker Brothers makes makes, uh, a Ouija board and we can trust them, can't we? Yes. I think so. No, I will never play with a Ouija board. No, we are uh, still... Well, you're scared of paranormal activity. I am. That movie was terrifying. It was spoopy. And, uh, you know, why risk it? You know, why risk, uh, you know, having, uh, you, uh, spoilers for paranormal activity, uh, the, the woman in the relationship, uh, get possessed by a demon and- No, that's like my worst fear. And end up killing me. I value myself too much to be killed by you. (laughs) But by somebody else? I mean, I'd prefer if I wasn't killed by somebody else, but just getting killed by you would- That'd just be tough. It would be. The publication of LaVey's Satanic Rituals in 1972 reinforced the idea that dark occult rituals had become a routine part of life for many Americans. It had no connections to Satanism or traditional occult religion, as we already talked about. 
Near the end of the decade, the Jonestown Massacre gave the world another example of what violence in a cult could look like. It says, is that a lie? Ah, she's possessed. The 70s also saw the rise of self-proclaimed former Satanists claiming to have had conversion experiences to Christianity. Four of them had come from the Manson cult and declared that the world was full of dark occult symbols and that the world was run, being run by ritualistic satanic witch cults. And this gave credibility to the story. Wait, witch cults? Yes. No, witch cults. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Finally, this decade also saw the well-publicized serial killing cases. The Zodiac Killer, the Alphabet Killer, Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy... The Hillside Stranglers, and the Son of Sam. Every time I hear the name, sorry, I know we're talking about serial killers here, but every time I hear the name John Wayne Gacy, I think <laughs> I, I think of uh, William H. Macy, which is uh, an actor. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> so just like confuse the two. So They are confusing, it's true. Yeah. The frenzied media coverage of these killers helped to grow a sense of fear in the culture at the time. So fear is a key thing. So now into the 80s and 90s, the rise of the satanic panic, and we're going to talk about a few key events. The 80s were a time of economic growth and financial prosperity, but it was also a time of unease in the population. There was population growth, urbanization, and the rise of the double-income family model, which necessitated a sharp rise in the need for daycare services. So you have men and women leaving their children with other people to look after them and so you kind of have a little bit of a guilt that goes with that you know your parents grew up in the 50s mom stayed home and if you are putting your kid in childcare, you're carrying a little bit of guilt with that right as a result anxiety about protecting the nuclear family from the unknown dangers of this time was high i, I just gotta stop here to say that you know what i i'm gonna say something pretty controversial here but i'm glad that both the man and the woman can work mm. because if we were a single income family and I was bringing home the money, we would not be doing very well for ourselves. No, we really wouldn't. <laughs> what does that mean? I love you so much. This, this was I'm a, here for the jokes. This was a trap and you <laughs> fell into it. What are you trying to say? Uh, we, we interrupt this program for a fight. That's fighting music. Back to you, Liz. <laughs> The 80s also saw the rise of the AIDS pandemic. Kidnapped victims' faces appeared on milk cartons. Mass panic surrounding the 1982 Tylenol murders. Trick-or-treat scares where people were like finding or thinking they were going to find razor blades in their chocolates. There wasn't actually, though? Uh, there was like one actual mm. instance where that happened. Right. Whatever happened to kidnapped victims being on milk cartons? I don't know, because I, like, never experienced that in my life, so... No, I've never seen that before. And but that's it's, like, like a, a trope, a, right? Yeah, it's a common thing. I guess trope, as you said, would be the best <laughs> way to explain it. But, like, I, I think, mean, let's bring that back, you I think know? it maybe happened more in America, but also, like, mm. who's all getting kidnapped? Like, I don't... I, don't I mean, I guess people are getting kidnapped. But, like, even in our fair city, I've heard of people going missing and stuff and you know i just think oh, maybe not enough people are drinking milk anymore maybe. you know i remember when i was a kid i used to drink my milk all the time a whole jug in a couple of days but uh now not as much so mm -hmm. anyways carry on this was also the first wave of reports of scary killer clowns attempting to prey on children <sighs> that's terrifying have you seen the fourth season of american horror story no, because I keep asking you to download it so we can watch it, and you never do. 
yeah, we have so much other stuff to watch. But I've never seen the actual all of the fourth season because it's not great. But the one aspect I liked about it, just because it's like super messed up, is there's this uh, there's this like killer clown guy that just goes in like kills people i presume i didn't watch that much of the season but he's he was terrifying mm. yeah mm. so we first had that happening in the 80s and the 90s mm. do you remember in 2016 when they were like clowns there was yeah there was an actual guy that was like he was dressed as a clown and he was like kidnapping kids wasn't he i think that was like the urban legend oh. and then people started like taking it too far and like dressing oh, up as clowns i remember that and then it was a yeah, I like I I remember it so vaguely that I don't remember what actually happened, but I'm like there's something there and I'm like, "Yes." I mean, not like a yes, like I was part of it or anything right. like that. Like <laughs> Can you imagine just, oh, I'm going to work, honey, and I put on my <laughs> clown makeup. <laughs> I'd be very confused and and concerned. Yeah. So each of these outbreaks of social unrest signaled America's growing alarm over stranger danger and the fear that a terrifying unknown evil could be lurking around the corner. And this is where we see the rise of the satanic ritual abuse trials. In the 80s and early 90s, a wave of troubling accusations swept across North America. There were tales of secret satanic organizations that were hell-bent on corrupting the young. Heavy metal music had hidden satanic messages, and games like Dungeons and Dragons were luring kids to devil worship. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I remember my um, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with uh, a friend, and uh, their mother told us that we were going to uh, the characters were going to essentially and en- not enter us. That sounds dirty. Uh, <laughs> the devil or, or demons were going to get inside us, and we were going to become the characters in real life. Mm-hmm. And so she made us go play outside. Mm. I was 19 at the time. So, <laughs> but we had a great time playing outside. So. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And then there was the claim that an underground network of Satanists were infiltrating daycares and preschools in order to physically and sexually abuse children in occult rituals. The majority of things that fueled the panic were not real, but these claims led to a wave of high profile criminal trials across the United States and even into Canada. These cases often followed a similar pattern, an initial report of physical or sexual abuse at a daycare that would snowball and take on a life of its own. Worried and meddlesome interveners, which included parents, police, and counselors, would question children, some as young as two years old, in ways that are now known to produce false allegations. And that can include stuff like leading the witness type. It can talk about like those repressed memories right where they were trying to get the kids to remember something that hadn't actually happened oh, i've i've seen uh, how to how to make a murderer on netflix there you go that's uh you didn't you didn't actually watch it but that was very much like the police were in- interviewing that that kid and very much being like so how did like this when this happened like what did you do and it was mm-hmm. very much leading and it was like kind of messed up yeah so, so that was kind of how these people not kind of this is what from i can understand from my research how they were questioning the children and so because of this children began to talk about animal sacrifices blood rituals secret tunnels and even cannibalism secret tunnels yes (laughs) i don't know secret tunnels i guess were a big thing about satanists i mean okay that seems (laughs) to me i'm just picturing like when we used to make secret tunnels in the in the snow Mm. you know in the backyard but Assuming some more um, satanic in this case. As a result of these allegations, police would lay charges and prosecutors would take them to court. And then the media would report, 
without much critical thought, on what seemed to be a growing threat. Some of these cases would fall apart at trial or during the appeal, while others resulted in wrongful convictions, and many of the accused spent years in prison, while others faced financial ruin and damaged reputations. No, I just might be a small-town lawyer, but... (laughs) I don't know where this joke is going, but (laughs) I wanted to do something about secret tunnels again. (laughs) Okay. Uh, uh, now, now tell, tell me, Jimmy, what about these secret tunnels? That's all I got. I, that, that joke didn't go anywhere, but (laughs) I've always wanted to say, no, I might just be a small town lawyer. Okay, well, I didn't leave that part in. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) Carry on. (laughs) So specialists in satanic ideology suddenly became in high demand and more and more ritual abuses went to trial. It became increasingly common to see ritual crime training centers led by psychologists, church groups, and even the police. All these people were in network with one another, and they were all going to seminars and discussions where they would be told, this is what a Satanist does, and this is how they do it. So these ideas are being planted, causing the spread of ritual abuse claims. Some people argued that you couldn't identify the types of cases unless you had been actually trained on the topic, but it's kind of like a catch-22, right? Like, they're going to these places and these seminars, which is increasing the ability or the thought that they're seeing all these different types of cases when maybe they're not. A chicken-egg situation. Some of the training ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. You can see... Prophecy. Prophecy. It's going to be a prophecy. You see abuse because that's what you're being inundated with. United States Congress doubled its budget for child protection programs in 1984 after they had heard a hearing from an expert warning them that children were being forced to engage in scatological behavior, which is basically to do with feces. That's what I thought. (laughs) Uh, And that they were being forced to watch bizarre rituals in which animals were being slaughtered. So there wasn't really any evidence. It was just this expert saying, hey, this is what's happening. And so Congress was like, yes, let us double our budget, which is a good thing. But like the reasoning behind why they wanted to double their budget is a little bit bizarre to me. I'm just picturing like the the people that this guy's pitching this to, like the professor or whatever, (laughs) The, the, the people who he's pitching it to be like, does does anybody else think that this guy's the guy that's doing this? Like, <laughs> who? where did he come up with this stuff? In 1985, the National Coalition on Television Violence created an organization called BADD, BAD, which stands for Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I'm, I'm, oh, hold on, there's just thoughts are happening right now. <laughs> I'm picturing an 80s or early 90s commercial, you know, where people are like playing Dungeons and Dragons. And then um, some guy comes in wearing a backwards hat, of course. And he's like, yo, you playing you playing Dungeons and Dragons? You ever heard about Jesus? <laughs> and then I don't know, gets into that. And then just big, bold red letters. Bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very similar to mad. Or D.A.R.E., actually. I imagine it as the D.A.R.E. program. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Bad said that role-playing games in general, but specifically Dungeons & Dragons, were satanic cult recruitment tools, inducing youth to suicide, murder, and satanic ritual abuse. Well, as someone who plays a lot of, some might say too much Pokemon, I can can attest that I, uh, I really like rituals, you know, especially the satanic variety, you know, so... You know, there is there was some merit to this. Mm. Bad. Mm. Bad. 
other alleged recruitment tools included heavy metal music. I do love my five finger death punch. Educators. I'm married to a teacher. Childcare centers. Uh, my sister works at one. And televisions. I love television. Am I bad? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> this information was shared at policing and public awareness seminars about crime and the occult, sometimes by active duty police officers. None of these allegations held up under scrutiny, however, with the analysis of youth suicide of the period in question, finding that role-playing group members actually had a much lower rate of suicide than the average. So what I'm hearing from that is play lots of role-playing games, you're less likely to be... Um, Suicidal. Exactly. Well, yeah, if I killed myself, I wouldn't... Hate what would... Catching all of those 900 Pokemon, what, what would have been the point? Wait, so are you saying that Pokemon is a role-playing game? Yeah. It's an RPG. It's a J. Well, not a, quite a JRPG. It's an RPG. Wow. You didn't know that? No. Do you play a Pokemon? Are you a Pokemon? There are ones called Mystery Dungeon where you play as a Pokemon, but no, you're a you're role playing as a ten year old <laughs> who goes out in the world, and their parents are just like, "Get out, son," and uh, sends you out in the world, and uh, you have to go and catch lots of Pokemon. Mm. You know, really. When you think about it, I think Pokemon is actually about child abuse. <laughs> I guess so. Oh my, oh my god. I have to go. <laughs> By the late 1980s, therapists or patients who believed someone had experienced satanic ritual abuse could suggest solutions that included exorcism. What? Or Christian psychotherapy, which is an aspect of psychology that adheres to Christianity and the teachings of Jesus. There were also support groups for people who self-identified as anti-satanic warriors. Federal funding was increased for research on child abuse, with large portions of the funding allocated for research on child sexual abuse. Funding was also provided for conferences supporting the idea of satanic ritual abuse, which gave a veneer of respectability to the idea, and also offered an opportunity for prosecutors to exchange advice on how to best secure convictions, which seems weird to me, with tactics including the destruction of their notes, refusal to tape the interviews with children, and destroying or refusing to share evidence with the defense. Which just seems anti, like, good law practice. Yep. <laughs> like, I feel like you're kind of... Wait, wait, wait. Now, I just might be a small-town lawyer, but that doesn't seem very lawyerly to me. Well, it doesn't make sense. It's like, ah... Uh... It, it sounds like you're guilty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're like, oh, well, uh, they can't prove anything if we destroy the evidence. Exactly. So, essentially, what we should be noting here is that all of these trials are happening over and over again... People are continually going to these different conferences to see how to catch a Satanist. And they're coming up with all of these different ways of identifying them. And it's just like a snowball effect where it just keeps happening over and over and over and over and over again. Coming to CBC this fall, how to catch a Satanist. <laughs> so media coverage of Satanic ritual abuse began to turn negative by 1987. So this is where we can kind of note that the panic is ending. The Martinsville panic was about 1992-1994. Things get to Canada a little bit later. Um, panic ended between 1992 and 1995. But what actually remains is that zealotry over finding and eradicating the perpetrators of satanic ritual abuse never resulted in any evidence that r sadistic ritual torture cults existed. Instead, the legal system continued to victimize innocent adults who were caught up in what was essentially a 20th century witch hunt. Many of these cases, and we're going to look at one a little bit more in depth next week, 
resulted in overturned convictions due to mishandled investigations and lack of evidence. Yet, there are still several people who are in jail or have never had their convictions overturned, and I've linked to a Vox article that talks about these individuals. In 1995, Geraldo Rivera... Is that how you say his name? Geraldo Rivera? Geraldo. Geraldo Rivera. He issued an apology for his 1987 television special, um, which was also really popular for like hyping up this idea that satanic ritual abuse existed. He apologized in 1995 for creating it. By 2003, allegations of ritual abuse were met with skepticism and belief in satanic ritual abuse was no longer considered mainstream in professional circles. Although the sexual abuse of children is a real and serious problem, allegations of satanic ritual abuse were essentially false. Reasons for the collapse of the phenomenon included the collapse of criminal prosecution against alleged abusers, a growing number of scholars, officials, and reporters questioning the reality of the accusations, and a variety of successful lawsuits against mental health professionals. According to Lisa Bryn Rundle from the CBC podcast Uncover, she says that the satanic panic may have had its origins in Canada. When asked about the spark that started it all, many experts point to a book called Michelle Remembers, written by a Canadian psychiatrist, and they also point to the McMartin preschool trial, which we will get into depth in, in part two of this episode. That's right, listener. You thought you were going to get it all in this episode. Joke's on you. You have to come back next week for the exciting conclusion of The Satanic Planet. So, thoughts, Dakota? Well, I think you have to wait for my thoughts in part two. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, yeah, I think this is interesting. I think that's a good jumping off point. Uh, I'm excited to hear about these actual cases, like, and what this book tied into and stuff like that. I, I especially found the, um, as you, as you could tell by my comments, I thought the bad part was, uh, quite enjoyable because, like, you know, I've been playing role play game role-playing games all my life and i've never thought to worship satan so i think this is very interesting i'm excited to see where it goes next i think we'll leave the rating till next week yeah yeah i wasn't gonna give one perfect yeah, that's you, you too bad listener you don't get one you have to come back next week to see my exciting wait let's see the exciting conclusion of satanic panic well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Leave a review or tell your friends about us. And if you want to see behind-the-scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian. Or if you have any show ideas or correction connections you may have noted, you can email us at thereluctanthistorian at gmail.com. So we will see you next week, same time, same place, for part two of the Satanic Panic. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Erickson, host of The Open Highway. You know, I've had some incredible adventures in my life, and along the way I learned a little bit about everything which, to be honest with you, is just enough to get me into trouble. But I bring that with me when I sit down with guests from the worlds of politics, news, science, current events, entertainment, and more. The Open Highway with Eric Erickson. Join me on The Open Highway, and let's have a conversation. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.